Welcome into the Duck Territory Podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel is across the way. Hello, hello. Very busy week. Yeah. For for Oregon athletics. Absolutely. I mean, we've got we've got three pretty prominent programs competing right now with softball just starting over the weekend, and we've got softball. We've got rivalry men's and women's basketball. It's gonna be fun. Yeah. We we were sitting here discussing. Okay, let's go over the kind of the show content plan. What we're going to discuss. Kind of outline the the format here and. You know, we're going through, okay, well, Oregon women's basketball, and they had that big weekend, and then we also want to talk about the start of softball, and then we got to lead into basketball because their tournament life still is not dead. Yeah, and they had a home sweep. They had a home sweep, and then uh, there was some recruiting news for football that came out over the weekend. We've got uh, some stuff that's coming down the pipe for Oregon football as well. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to get to um, with – this podcast, we're going to cover it all. We're going to cover women's basketball. We're going to go into the softball start. Uh, look, very positive yeah. start for, for Oregon softball to the season, 5-0. and oh. uh, The men got their first sweep home or away. Uh, they've now won four of their last five games. Uh, are they still in the discussion for a top-four seed in the Pac-12 tournament next month? Uh, and then, obviously, there was a commitment that uh, Oregon was waiting on uh, potentially happening on Sunday with Puka Nakua. We'll discuss that as well, and then uh, we'll, we'll dive into a preview ahead of Junior Day at Oregon uh, coming up for football recruiting and, and kind of a, a PSA about college football recruiting in general um, of where things stand if you're a fan of college football and college football recruiting. But, Eric, first let's go into this basketball game uh, because I, I, I think it's safe to say – the city of Eugene and the Oregon fan base, they have women's basketball fever. Um, everyone's dialed in on this team. Uh, they are the number three ranked team in the country. They've now received three first place votes uh, in the latest AP vote. That confirmed that is the most in program history. And it stems from uh, an absolute beatdown of perennial Stanford, a team that's dominated this league for years. Uh, when they went into Maples and won 88 to 48, which is, uh, the largest ever home loss for Hall of Fame coach Tara Vandeveer. Uh, just an absolute butt kicking by, by Oregon that surprised, I, I wasn't Absolute, surprised that well, they won. No, yeah. And that they won by double digits. I'm surprised that it was 40. And one thing just really quick, you talk about the fever uh, from the fan base. At the Oregon men's game, they announced the score, I think, during the first media timeout. And, and it, was, it wasn't it was the loudest cheer of the night because there were some great plays and Oregon won handily over Stanford. But one of the loudest cheers was the crowd reacting to the Oregon winning 88-48 to 48, uh, at Stanford. Stanford ranked 11th in the country. This was just their fourth loss of the season. And Oregon just absolutely lays a beatdown on them, and it's, it was kind of a, a game, like you said, where I think people were expecting it to be competitive, yeah. that this game potentially could determine the Stanford conference. was 11th. Yeah, Stanford's ranked 11th, and for this game to be kind of not really competitive outside of about a couple minutes into the second quarter um, is is huge, and, uh, you know, the coverage nationally was pretty excited as well. You see, saw ESPN's Andy Landers this week, who's their na- who's their kind of their national voice for college women's basketball. Coached at Georgia for about thirty years, he comes out and says this makes Oregon the best team in the country, and then goes on to basically say that nobody can stop them offensively. That this is one of the best offenses he's seen, you know, ever. Um, so a, a lot of national attention has already been on this program, as we said, third ranked nationally, but. When you go in on the road and take the you know the big power program because like you said Matt 
for a really long time, Stanford was the championship always went through Palo Alto. It always went through Stanford. And for Oregon to go in there and not just beat them, but that was a dominating statement. You know, we're here and, and we're the top dog kind of victory. And it sets them up now where they go into this weekend. They go, they host Oregon State on Friday. They go to Oregon State and Corvallis on Monday. If they sweep those games, they've, they I think, pretty much clinched the conference. They'd be up uh, four over Oregon State and at least three over Stanford with the tiebreak with four to play. So even if they lost out, which isn't going to happen, yeah. we're talking about a, another conference championship. So I think a lot to unpack there. This program just continues to kind of make next steps and. Obviously, this is the best season in program history, 23-1, and winners of 16 in a row. And we don't want to gloss over a 105-82 victory that happened Friday also, night at California. A game that, you know, that score doesn't really surprise me, more, maybe more so the fact that they gave up 82 points uh, in that one. Uh, but the, the Bay Area sweep, which, mind you, is the first victory at Stanford, uh, I think, since like the 70s. I think I think it was 29 years. Yeah, yeah, it was 80s. Yeah, it was late 80s. Late late 80s uh, when when Oregon State, uh, excuse me, when Oregon went into Stanford and won, and now that gives Oregon a two game lead over Oregon State, mm-hmm. a three game lead over Stanford, and they have a four game lead uh, over UCLA, and this sets up a monumous game uh, in Eugene Friday night against Oregon State for the first of two Civil War games because really, if Oregon can get one of those two games against OSU... Um, yeah, that's probably all they need is one. Probably. They basically kind of lock themselves up. I mean, it would take a, a an epic collapse. It would take, you know, knock on wood here for this women's team, multiple injuries uh, for this team to, to collapse and fall apart and lose the conference championship. If they sweep the Beavers, which... I think they're going to do. I mean, I I watched Oregon State play at Stanford Friday night, and the Beavers could not hang with Stanford. They played terrible basketball. They got blown out by I think twenty points, mm-hmm. and then Oregon proceeds to, to blow to be to beat Stanford by forty. Uh, so if if you want to go down that school of thought, Oregon should be heavily favored in, in both of these games. If they come out of there 2-0 and with a 14-0 and record in conference play with four games to go, no one's going to catch them. Absolutely not. And, and I think one thing you have to start thinking here, and I'm going to probably look into this after this weekend, but this if Oregon runs the table, and, and obviously we're projecting a lot here, there's six games to play, this could go down as maybe the best, or at least in the conversation for best teams in this conference ever. I, I was just crunching the numbers before we came on, and Oregon's 12 conference games, they've won by an average of 27.5 points. They've only been in single uh, single, yeah, single yeah, digits once, and that was against Arizona State at home. Every other game has been double digits. Six of them have been by 40 or more. They've won by 59 over Colorado just last week. Uh, they beat Utah, who at the time had lost one game by 22, although that game was kind of an interesting one where it was close until late. But this is just an extremely dominant, dominant program, and like you said, Oregon State ranked currently 7th. I actually don't know if that's um, including the new AP poll. They did lose to Stanford, so they probably have dropped a little bit. But Oregon State, a very good program. But I, I'm with you. I wouldn't be surprised if Oregon puts, I don't think 40 points is a good yeah. expectation, but they can beat them soundly this weekend, I think. And, and that'll be, again, another step towards winning the conference and kind of cementing themselves as the elite program out west. And what makes, I think, this Oregon team so impressive and so good is they have scoring from everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all five players that start average 10 or more points 
And we, and understandably so, she she 100% deserves all the attention that we focus on her and Sabrina Inescu uh, with the triple-double queen and, you know, the impact that she has on Oregon. She is the engine that runs this program. Uh, but she's not the leading scorer in conference play for, for the Ducks. I, I think what has elevated Oregon into um, the best offense in, in the country uh, and into this juggernaut is the development of Satu Sopoli because she averages 20 points a game in, in conference play, leads the team in scoring, uh, and she makes three threes a game. Uh, she shoots 51% from the field. Which is crazy which, for a six foot four woman is equivalent to like a six eleven guy. Yeah. And she's shooting, uh, I believe almost, uh, four free throws a game, which is pretty good for a wing. Um, you probably would like to see her get to the line a little bit more than that, um, if you're Kelly Graves, but she's almost unguardable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fair or not, maybe this is a bad comparison. You can tell me if it is or not. She's she's kind of like the female version of Kevin Durant. That's a comparison I think you've you've seen and heard, and it makes sense in terms of how she plays, the ability to shoot the three. And again, at six four, as a female player, that is like six ten, six eleven. People that has to be recognized. This is not like a six foot six version. From she's an unusual player with that size because when Oregon goes out there and starts that lineup, she's going to be facing players that are yeah. four or five inches shorter a lot of the time, yeah. and she's going to have that height advantage. And the fact that she can step back and hit the three. She's extremely explosive in the room, and I agree. She's been, or if you throw a, if a, an opponent throws a six foot five or oh, yeah, six foot six right forward, they're not going to have the foot speed which to stick is, in front of her. Which is what happened against Utah because they put Megan Huff, who by the way was awesome in that game for Utah, but they put her on her and sadly just went right by her. And that was actually how Oregon kind of opened up the late lead there and eventually won by over twenty points. But yeah, she she is a match matchup nightmare. I don't know what you do against her and. You know, you have with this Oregon team, and this is why people think they could win it all this year. And yeah. I think this is the first time people have kind of had that discussion where it kind of nationally, Oregon has really, really kind of cemented himself in that conversation of this could be an unstoppable force offensively, and a player like Satu Sabli is a big part of that. And that's what makes it such a special team is that you've got UNESCO, who's probably going to be the national player of the year. Sabli could have a conversation for Pac-12 <laughs> player of the year. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could argue that, you know, Either of those players wins this award yeah. uh, this season. They have um, a home game on Friday against Oregon State, and then they go up to Oregon State on Monday the 18th, and then they come back for, for two more home games, the final two home games of the regular season. They play UCLA Friday the 22nd of February. They play uh, USC February 24th on Sunday, and that then uh, they close out the regular season uh, with two games early in March in Arizona, uh, first Friday at Arizona and then Sunday at Arizona State. I think the goal for Oregon is 18 and 0 in conference play. Uh, that that that's kind of what they're playing for right now. Because if if they beat Oregon State on Friday uh, and then they beat Oregon State on Monday, it doesn't matter what happens the rest of the way in league play. Uh, they could lose the next four games. They're still going to be the the regular season champions. So you're you're your immediate goal is this week, secure the Pac-12. And then after that, it's it's to play uh, for a perfect record at conference play. And then they go to Vegas. And then this is where it can get real fun for, for an, if you're an Oregon fan or if you're obviously a player on the Oregon team. Uh, they will host a, a first and second round uh, game in the NCAA tournament. And then the Sweet 16 in the Elite Eight, it's in Portland. 
it, this sets up. I mean, it sets up pretty nicely here, and we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here because we're talking 10, 12 games down right. the line. But th- this could be a situation where Oregon enters the Final Four with one loss. Yeah, I don't think that's com- and, and on like a 25, 26 game win streak. So I don't think that's completely out of the equation. Of course, you want to keep your eye on the prize and stay focused on Oregon State this week. But you're right. After that, they host the LA schools. They dominate those teams on the road, and they go to the Arizona schools. They kick the crap out of Arizona. Arizona State was a good game, and I expect that will be. Probably the most challenging of those final four, but then Pac-12 tournament, neutral court, they've already shown that they can beat up, like I said, 27 and a half point margin right now, should probably run through there, and then they play four games within a couple hour drive of Eugene in the, in the NCAA tournament. I mean, that, that sets yeah. up about perfectly for them to, you look up and all of a sudden it's the final four and, and they're 32 and one or whatever the record is. So yeah, it, it, it's set up pretty perfectly for them right now. Also exciting weekend for Oregon softball. They yeah. open they open the year top twenty five. And hey, how about this for a second? Before we go into softball, we're opening our podcast. The two biggest topics that we wanted to talk about: women's sports. I think that's pretty cool. I think uh, there is a huge growing interest in Oregon athletics outside of the quotes money makers. In the conference, in the, in the, in the athletic department, that's football and that's basketball, men's basketball, the two most prominent, you know, public image sports for right. the athletic department. I think this program has taken a huge shift. Um, obviously football is always going to be king. Basketball will, will always have that opportunity to kind of run one A, one uh, B or, or number two to football. Um, but we've seen it on our site. We've seen it on Twitter. We've seen it whenever we go out and talk to people or go to work and people come up to us and talk about it at, at games, uh, just in and about town. There is a huge, huge wave of interest in women's sports at, at Oregon, and I think that's awesome. Fan support is showing up. Uh, people are reading about it. They're clicking about it. And I, this is the next sport, softball, that's you and I were talking about it. We were we are taken back at how, how much interest there is in this team, and certainly – some of the off-field stuff has, has fueled that. Yeah. But once the game started, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion, a lot of demand for us to do more, and that's pretty cool. And this softball team opened up. They needed to play games. Absolutely. That you know, Winning was you – know, getting out there, winning was obviously important, but just playing games and having some something to, to take away – from the narrative of the program is falling apart and you know the world the end of the world is here for Oregon softball and that's what happened on, on over this past weekend and, and they look pretty good. Yeah, five wins in, in three days and again I don't think the competition here was awesome. Missouri was probably the best team in the field and Missouri actually run ruled Utah and Arizona State both schools picked above Oregon in the Pac twelve preseason poll. So that's impressive. Oregon goes out and wins six one. But yeah, I mean, this was a program that was much maligned. I think, you know, I think part of the attention right now was there was so much anticipation for this season because yeah. this was the loudest off season I can ever remember for a any non, sport, a non football sport. I'll say just because there's so much negativity, so much what in the heck is going on? We chased stories, we talked to some people, we heard a lot of the same stuff that's already been reported. Um, and, and it was it was an ugly off season. I don't think there's any other way to put it. I mean, there was a lot of people saying, "Oh, they, they, maybe they won't win a game all season, or maybe they should fire Lombardi before they play." Yeah. Those are all crazy people opinions. Those are takes that don't lend themselves to, to really to much anything in reality. Because 
If you look at the roster, obviously they lost nine players, and no one is saying that, no one is saying differently. That's a piece. That's a fact. That's reality. It sucks. But they still have some talent on the roster. Yeah. They, they recruited extremely well. All of these players are still with. Most of the players are still with them from this last recruiting class. And you saw them flex their muscle a little bit this weekend because Oregon goes out and they score more than ten runs in three out of five games. They score six in the other and eight in, in, the, in the finale over Seattle. So I think over almost fifty runs scored in. Uh, Sorry, more than 50 runs scored in five games. Uh, and a lot of the success came from freshmen. You know, Rachel Sid and Hannah Gailey both had three home runs, both drove in nine or ten RBIs. Um, you saw, uh, you know... On- 34 of Oregon's 46 RBIs were yeah, counted by, by freshmen. freshmen. Yeah, and, and I was going to say, Jasmine Sievers didn't even play in the first four games. She came out in the finale, hit uh, her first home run, kind of the deciding home run, um, to get them three RBI to get them in the yeah to get them in the win column there so a very successful weekend from these freshmen I think if we're just wanting to take a quick look I think one thing that you have to be sort of cognizant of is that the pitching staff is continues to be a little bit worrisome yeah. Jordan Dale was I thought pretty excellent all weekend she picks up three wins two five one ERA is pretty solid not nothing awesome but they need to find a second arm, and I don't want to, you know, make too much of a takeaway from what Maddie McGrandle did this weekend. But 15 walks in less than 11 innings—that's that's got to be a little bit better than that. That's you got to have a little bit better control. And, and she struggled ERA of, of close to six over the weekend. So um, it seems pretty clear that Jordan Dale is going to be who they go with. But they need to get something more out of McGrandle here, I think, going forward. Another piece that we should mention is. They played five games. Opponents had 14 errors against them, and Oregon had just one. That's a big statistic. You know, there was a lot of question about this young infield. Basically, the entire infield is freshmen. How are they going to handle things? Yeah. And they did. They equipped themselves extremely well. The the pitching is going to be the issue. I, yeah. I think we, yeah. we walked out of that weekend thinking, okay, they've got the bats to have the explosive offense that we've seen in Oregon softball over the last four or five years. You know, they have the power. They have the ability. Now, there's going to be probably some inconsistencies because you're relying on so many freshmen. And there's going to be a point in the season where they hit that freshman wall and there's going to be some struggles and, you know, batters are going to, are going to have, you know, some, some streaks there at the plate where they're just not hitting the ball very well. It's going to happen. Uh, you have to adjust, but the question becomes, can they get pitching and can, and can the pitching keep them in games where they can win 10 to, 10 to 8 or 10 to 10 to 7, 10 to 6, something of that nature. Because just for comparison's sake, you know, Maddie uh, McGrandle had 15 walks yeah. over the weekend. Um, and, and this is maybe a little unfair of a comparison. It's one weekend. It's one weekend. Um, and, but Megan Kleist had just 21 all of last season. Mm-hmm. Miranda Ellish had 32 all of last season. Maggie Ballant uh, had 16 all of last season. And now uh, you can argue, hey, look. You know, McGrandle's not those three pitchers. She, you know, that playing to that level is 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 not a fair comparison. But that being said, that kind of gives you an idea of Context. just of of just how wide the gap is from where Oregon was in pitching after their after their first pitcher after their ace uh, and, and Dale to where they are now with McGrandle. Um, they're going to have to find you know solidify some things, and they'll be in some improvement, I'm sure. Um, but we'll learn a lot about this Oregon softball yeah. team uh, this weekend because they go to Florida, Clearwater. Uh, they take on LSU and James Madison on Friday, who are both ranked in the top 25 as well. Uh, and then on Saturday, they play a Florida Atlantic team that's solid. 
and then another ranked team in Kentucky Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. So this coming weekend is going to be a good barometer of how far along are these freshmen that we think are better than expected? Is the pitching as worse as we think it is, or, or could it be better? Or, yeah. or, or on the flip side, could it be worse? I think I think the, the goal here would be to win two games out of this weekend. Yes. Pick up a win over Florida Atlantic, which is clearly the weakest of the teams in the, in the, of the, that they play, and then get one win out of LSU, James Madison, and Kentucky. And, and if they do that, I think you come away going, hey, they're seven and two right now. They they picked up a win over a ranked team. That's impressive. You know, this considering that not too long ago they had 14 players on the roster. Obviously, they added five to get to 19, but that would be a, a big step. And Again, it's not going to be easy because these are this is a field of teams that are going to be playing in the NCAA's. These are teams that are probably going to host regionals, maybe make the, the women's college world series. Um, you know, LSU has, has been kind of a mainstay in that, and James Madison was a couple of years ago as well. They're one of the top you know softball programs too. So this is this is going to be, I think, a big weekend in terms of kind of establishing where they are, and then the following weekend it gets a little bit easier, and then the following the weekend after that. End of February at the Judy Garmin Classic. That's another one where it's a stacked field with a bunch of ranked teams. So uh, they're certainly going to be tested. I think they did a good job of weathering those concerns over the weekend. Um, again, not the most challenging field of opponents right. in the opening weekend, but I think you're going to get a much better idea uh, kind of where they stand after the Clearwater Invitational. And there will be some of those games uh, on TV. Yeah. Uh, SEC Network has the LSU game, ESPN3 has the James Madison game, and then the Florida Atlantic game is not on TV, but then against Kentucky Saturday afternoon, uh, that game is on ESPNU. So uh, if you're a softball fan, there will be opportunities to watch three out of those four games uh, being played. Wouldn't surprise me one bit if we learned some other stream is out there for that Florida Atlantic game. Uh, if, if you're a diehard and you really want to watch uh, some stream softball. Um, we'll be paying attention to it on the site. Eric's uh, our full-time go-to beat writer for Oregon, Oregon softball. So, you know, we made that decision, I think, in the spring of last year that, hey, we need to dive full-time into women's basketball um, and ahead of this coming season that's currently going on. And we've had Alec, Aaron, and Zach Reglin, who are our two interns on the site, um, they have – Cover the team for from the start until present. Mm-hmm. You've now joined uh, in, into conference play full time, and we also made the decision in I think it was January or December that once softball season came around, uh, you are going to devote more time full time to this softball program just because there's a lot of interest. So if if you aren't reading our stuff on Duck Territory, I strongly consider you go uh, and read Eric's work covering these two teams because. We will be there as a site from start to finish. Yeah, we are fully committed to covering these programs like we would cover men's basketball or football. Obviously, football right. has more opportunities for coverage, but these are these are right now are probably the bigger stories around Eugene. Yep. I think you know we look at the numbers and softball and women's basketball certainly just draw more eyes right now than men's basketball. It's, it feels strange considering where men's basketball was even early on in the season with Bull Bull on the roster, but that's kind of the reality of where things are. And, um, and that doesn't necessarily detract too much from the men's season, but I think we've got a really special season for the women who, yeah. again, I think could could contend for a national championship. And the softball, so much interest largely because of this off season. And now 
I think a little bit of optimism that this could be a much better season than a lot of people expected. Shifting gears to the men's basketball side of things, and hey, big weekend for the Ducks. Yeah. You know, we've been. By waiting. the way, we're talking winning. We're, <laughs> we're talking winners right now. No losers. Nobody lost this weekend of these major of these major programs. Everybody won. That's pretty darn good. That's All, nine nine and zero this weekend between softball, basketball, and women's basketball. Yeah, I think you said uh, GoDucks.com's editor in chief uh, Rob Mosley. Um, I think he tweeted some stat that Oregon Athletics went fourteen and one. Yeah. Over the weekend. I don't know who lost, but shame on them. <laughs> but either way, that's an awesome week. And like, it was interesting covering this week because we've had so many rough weekends for men's basketball. Oh my god, a lot of negativity. But just having a weekend where everybody won every game, our message boards, happier, happier campers. Uh, Ducks beat Cal Wednesday. Uh, a lot of people missed this game because it was on signing day. Yeah. Uh, it was a game. He didn't miss much. He didn't miss much. I think it was on FS1. If I remember correctly, the Ducks won 73 to 62. Didn't cover a, I think a 14 point spread. Looked like they were, and then uh, Cal kind of chipped in a couple late baskets to to get that under the uh, over under there. And then on Sunday night, uh, they had the long layoff. They didn't play Thursday, didn't play Friday, didn't play Saturday. Said so three days off before Sunday. Which is weird. Um, yeah, really weird for for Oregon. I, I would be really upset if I was Stanford or, or because or Cal because they both played. I think on Sunday. Or, or Cal, Oregon State was on Saturday, but for Stanford, they played Wednesday night, uh, I, I believe, at, at Oregon State. I think it was Thursday. Thursday? Yeah, it was okay. Thursday, I think. But yeah, either way. It's but a either long way, way, it's a long weekend. Long ass play, uh, but Ducks come out, win that game 69 to 46, and um, you had the gamer, I had the column. Uh, Oregon first half, just maybe one of the worst, you know, offensively from both sides. It was so bad. It was so. So bad. Sanford didn't make a field goal for seven minutes. Yeah, yeah, they they missed their first, I think, twelve shots. At one point, were one for twenty-two from the field, Oof. which is just like this is this is like I don't even know. Like I covered like high school girls basketball and high school boys basketball. Rarely does a team ever start that slowly. And then the weird thing was, is again Stanford. It's like Stanford's one for twenty-two, and they're down six to two because <laughs> Oregon was almost just as bad. And if Oregon was facing a team. That was able to get anything going offensively. They probably are trailing for most of that half, and, and they end up leading thirty to twenty at the break, and end up blowing it open in the second half, winning by twenty three. Yeah, I think I, I think they at one point in that game led by twenty six points. Yeah, they, they push it open the second half, and that, and that was what you wanted to see because that's what we didn't see against Cal on Wednesday. It was a similar game in that Oregon was pretty clearly the better team against Cal on Wednesday, had the advantage basically throughout, but they could just never really open it up and and make it. A twenty-point game. They were able to do that against Stanford, so I think that's important. I think the one thing we, we should we should start here with is that was a, a huge game from Kenny Wooten, and that, yeah. that's kind of a signature Kenny Wooten game because this is what he can do. He and tied his career high in blocks, seven shot blocks, and it started early because I think two of the first three possessions Stanford have Casey at Paula literally being scored, one of the better offensive players in the conference. Drove it right down the middle of the defense, tried to lay it in, and, and Wooten met him at the top and blocked the crap out of it. One of them was extremely decisive, sent it out of bounds, and then kind of had that Draymond Green, Allen Iverson step-over move, which is a little disrespectful, but, <laughs> you know, you block a shot, maybe you're excited. Um, but he was he was a difference maker, and Altman talked about after the game and that he totally changed the tone because Stanford started the game trying to drive it down the rim every time, but Wooten, I think, blocked three shots in the first about four minutes of the game. Stanford had to kind of change their approach on things, and and even when they were attacking in the second part of the game, you know, seven shot blocks for the game is an awesome number. Um, he was extremely active, and again, this is what we kind of expected we'd see out of him this season. 
And this has been kind of a year where it's been up and down with the injury, but to see him finally kind of step up, have a game like that where it's a signature game where he's the best player on the court um, for, for most of it was, I think, big and gives you some optimism kind of down the, the, the home stretch here that if he can play at this level, Oregon's going to have somebody on the back end defensively that can really make things difficult. And if it wasn't for Robert Franks basically playing <laughs> the game of his life in back-to-back games at Arizona State and at Arizona, Peyton Pritchard probably was going to be the Pac-12 player of the, of the week. Um Maybe even bigger news for Oregon and, and just their overall stance of, of getting into the top four of the Pac-12 standing is that Pritchard shot 15 of 27 from the field uh, over the weekend, scored 20 points in both games, uh, and made more field goals this past weekend against Cal and Stanford than he did in the previous four and a half games. Wow. Um, he's out of his shooting slump, I think you can say, because he hasn't really shot the ball well at all since... Uh, USC game when he went three of six shot, uh, 50% from the field, but he only took six shots. Yeah. He didn't make a single basket against UCLA. Uh, again, if you want to find a game where he shot more than six times and made 50% of his shots or, or, or better, better than 45% of his shots or 43% of his you shots. You have to scroll away up. You have to find <laughs> Boise State, uh, on December 15th in Eugene. Uh, the first game without Bull Bull, when he went seven of twelve and had nineteen points, um, he 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 did both he did both he shot above fifty percent in both games fifty at Cal uh, against Cal and then sixty one percent against Stanford and the I think the bigger deal here is is he shot seven of thirteen from three point land uh, you know hit, again best back to back performance of the year probably. Uh, shooting a th- from three-pointers. Uh, actually, looking back at it, Syracuse, Green Bay, he shot 66% and 50%. So, you know, second-best you know, back-to-back performance shooting. And I think you have to credit, um, they did this a couple weeks ago, they, they decided to put Pritchard at the two and more so run him off ball screens and you know, run him through the offense and have Will Richardson kind of distribute uh, for this team. I, I think that move has helped Will Richardson, um, and it's also helped... Uh, Peyton Pritchard a little bit. Richardson had nine assists. Uh, he did have a couple. He had five turnovers against California, but he added eight points. And then at home on, on Sunday night against Stanford, he had four assists and one turnover. Many of those went to, to Peyton. Yeah, 13 assists for the weekend, six turnovers. You'll take that from Richardson. And, again, I, I'm with you on the Pritchard stuff. I think we, we talked about it before about whether or not this offense can kind of work at a high level at a, at a quality clip with, with Pritchard being the primary offensive player. I still don't think that's the case. But I do think this offense is better when he is playing at a high level offensively. I still think Lewis King, for my money, is the most talented offensive player on, on this roster. I think most would probably agree with that. And he probably is the guy that should be trying the most, you know, taking the most field goals. Didn't have his best weekend, by the way. Uh, 12 and 2 against uh, California, uh, 16 and 7 against Stanford was a little bit better. But um, when Pritchard is able to step up and play at a high level, I think that makes everything work a little bit more easily because you have to get out on him on the perimeter. And when you have uh, capable three-point shooters, which is something this team has struggled at pretty much all year, and we should mention also that Victor Bailey broke out of the slump. Yeah. He had 11 points. Uh, it was only, I think, 3 for 7 from 3 and 4 for 11 overall, so not a great shooting percentage, but they needed him to kind of show some stuff. But when you have those guys in the perimeter – Shooting at a high level, that opens things up for Lewis King, for Will Richardson to kind of drive it to the rim. And Pritchard himself, we should mention, I think most of his second half points came on drives to the rim. And he had some success 
beating Stanford's guards off the dribble, getting to the rim and finishing over some pretty good big men for Stanford. So really encouraging what we saw from him. And I think against Oregon State this week, he's going to come out and play, or is going to feel like he can go out and play with a little bit more confidence. The last time they played Oregon State, he was 5 for 16 from the field, 2 for 9 from 3. He missed a pretty big shot at the end of the game that if it would have gone down, Oregon would have probably beaten the Beavers. So opportunity for Oregon again. We haven't talked about this. Oregon's one game out of second place in conference <laughs> after what's been one of the most brutal seasons. They're six and five, so they're not having. It's not like they have this great record, but they I are. Mean, it's going to take a miracle for them to win the league. I mean, they're, it, oh, theoretically, they're it, not out. They, it would, yeah, it's, the Washington needs to lose like every game, and Oregon needs to win every game, basically. But they could. You could finish second pretty yeah. easily. It's not hard. And, and Oregon, to me, honestly, having watched them play, name a team that they were clearly worse than besides Colorado, and that was just. To me, that's mostly just that Oregon can never win in Boulder for some reason. It's just, it's just never going to happen. But like, you could have, they, they had a lead against Oregon State. They had a lead against Arizona State. They UCLA, beat. UCLA, uh, they, yeah, they had a lead against UCLA. It was double digits with a couple minutes to go. Brutal. We don't have to go over that again. Uh, <laughs> they beat Utah. They beat Arizona. They've beaten Stanford. They've beaten Washington State. Should have beaten Washington. They probably. they beat color, uh, California. You can say they should have beaten Washington. And then, like you said, the Colorado game, uh, that was just an outlier of performances uh, for Oregon basketball, which you still have to take into consideration. Right. Um, but they're not going to play Colorado the rest of the year unless they play in the Pac-12 tournament. And it's not in Boulder. They will not be in Boulder. They will not play game in Boulder again. I think Dan Altman might want to have to talk to the commissioner's office and be like, can you never play in Boulder again? Because it never never goes well. Can we just forfeit that game? But I'm with you that that this team, you know, look, and the biggest thing that I I took away from Dan Altman's press conference on Sunday was uh, that this team, in his eyes, is as healthy as it's ever been. Uh, And, you know, obviously they're not going to get Bull Bull back, and I think any kind of comment about that is – with the understanding of, hey, we know Bull Bull's hurt. He's not coming. He's not going to play. We've basically changed our perspective of this is where we're at without Bull Bull. We aren't considering, you know, where we were playing with and without. We should we should mention that Matt and I were talking about this thing out against Cal on Wednesday. If Bull Bull came back this season, just with the year he's had, he would go down. I think he'd be an extremely revered yes Oregon player because and we should say we don't expect we, Bull we, Bull. We don't, there's like a no percent chance yeah. he like showed up. And the Pac-12 tournament and led them. It's like, play. hey guys, I'm going to play now. I'm going to play, and he and he showed up in the Pac-12 tournament, and they won three games largely because of, or they won the tournament. How many other games they have to play because of him? I think Oregon fans would absolutely go ape crap out of it, and, and he would become an all-time. I love the uh, the. <laughs> What's the word I'm, I'm sitting here for? Uh, the change of words, you know, it, censoring, censoring. I, I self-censored because <laughs> I realized the word I was going to say was was not uh, probably podcast friendly. Maybe it can be a, a slightly dirty podcast if you want it to be, but um, but I, I just think that that would be. And again, this is a hypothetical that isn't going to happen. So it's not even a hypothetical. It's more of a dream scenario. But it would be if he did come back. I think Oregon fans would go crazy. Yeah, but the reality is, is it's not <laughs> with or without Bull, they still have a chance to get a number two seed in this. And look, their NCAA tournament hopes, this is like nine lives of a cat because yeah. they lose to Colorado and we look at it and say, oh, they're done. Like, there's no way they can get an at-large bid. The way that loss happened, the fact that they lost at home to Texas Southern, they didn't beat Iowa on the road in a neutral game. They didn't beat Houston in a, in a road game. They got embarrassed uh, at Baylor. 
you know, they, they have those, you know, all these losses at home. You know, they can't get in. Well, they've just beaten two teams in the conference, and Jerry Palm has them as one of the last four teams in. Uh, last four teams out. You know. What do we know? What do we know? I mean, you literally could, you literally could see a scenario play out where Oregon goes, they have seven conference games left in the regular season. You could see something play out where they go six and one, they get to the conference championship game, and they're probably in the NCAA tournament. Now, how realistic, how likely is that? Probably not very high. But, that turns the narrative to you need a top four seed because if you get in a top four seed, you don't have the buy, you, you have the buy in the tournament. You don't have to play four games in four days and have that just wear on you. And there's not a single team in this league that you can't beat. The hard part of that scenario is Oregon plays seven games. Only two of them yes. are at home. And Dana Alma noted that the schedule. So it, it's a big schedule flip. They just played a, a sequence of games where most of them were at home. They took care of business, with, obviously, with, with the exception of Washington a couple weeks ago, but um, they now are going to be on the road. They're going to have to be road warriors starting with the game in Corvallis on Saturday, but after that, they go to the L.A. schools. I think Oregon's better than both those teams, having watched them play. I know UCLA and USC have picked up some decent wins since we saw them last, but Oregon was clearly better than USC, was honestly clearly better than UCLA, if not for an incredible close to that game from the Bruins, an incredible kind of like, I don't know, like they fell apart for Oregon. Arizona State, Arizona the following weekend at home. I think Oregon can win both those yeah. games. And then Washington State, Washington on the road. Washington State, we should mention, playing some pretty darn good basketball. And Washington is 10-1. and one. Those are both going to be, I think, pretty tough games. But you just kind of look at that and go, man, if they can go if they can go 6-1 and one from this stretch, that would be, I think, A, really impressive. And B, like you said, set them up possibly to do something I don't think any of us really thought they could. Yeah, they'd be 12-6 and six in conference play. They'd probably be a top-four seed. I think, I think if you have seven or less losses in conference – uh, you are going to be a top four team because well the reality is is uh, seven or less you know Arizona State has three games they're at seven and four Oregon State's at seven and four Utah's at seven and four Oregon's at six and five so if you can find yourself with seven or less losses you're more than likely going to to, to put yourself in that top four and the other thing that helps is that they they play Washington Arizona State and Oregon State upcoming and they, yeah, they play, play everybody they play everybody ahead of them and the team they're tied with coming up. The only team they don't play is Utah and they already have the tiebreaker. Exactly. You know, they're they're in a position where everybody that's in this this muddled two through ten, they play everybody outside of Colorado and Utah. And so you you have to hope that you don't run into a situation where you and Colorado are duking it out for that fourth spot because then they get the tiebreaker. Right. And you have to hope if you are in a, a two man race, it's against Utah with a tie because you have the tiebreaker there. Yes, absolutely. And again, we should just—we've kind of already established it. It's a wacky conference yep. season. Washington looks like the clear best team at ten and one. For my money, if this Washington team was playing in the conference two and a half years ago, when Oregon and UCLA and Arizona are all top five, top ten teams, this Washington team would probably have won like eleven conference games, and they would be kind of middle of the road. But this is a down year for the conference. But it's been a strangely kind of fun year because we saw this weekend Washington State go into Arizona and Arizona State and just basically wreak havoc against two of the premier programs in the conference. This is a Washington State team that was 1-8 coming into the weekend. So really, anything can happen besides Oregon winning at Colorado and California apparently winning a conference game. And if you want to <laughs> look at it from an outside Oregon perspective, um, Greg, Greg Hansen um, down in Tucson, Tucson.com, uh, and I believe the Arizona Daily Star, uh, he wrote a, a story over the weekend He's covered the Pac-12 for 40 years. He started at Oregon State when they were like a number one team in the country uh, and has covered Arizona for decades. 
Um, and he, he basically wondered out loud and wrote out a huge story about, you know, how good is this Washington team? They are looking like they are going to win the league. And he went back and rated the 40 best conference champions, uh, and, or 40 best teams in the Pac-12. And this Washington team does not make his list of 40 teams. I think that's fair. And, you know, from an Oregon perspective, if you're curious, he feels like there's six Oregon teams, uh, that were better and, and, you don't want to get too far away from what I'm pointing at is here. Is he said that the Final Four team is actually the sixth best team in the last 40 years, uh, in his opinion, uh, in Pac-12 basketball. But the point here is is that this Husky team is they're going to win the league more than likely. They might not have more than three losses uh, to their name in conference play. And yet I think you could conceivably say that there's four or five teams in the conference that could beat them. And it wouldn't, oh, yeah. be, and it wouldn't be a surprise. So, Absolutely. you know, they – they have a lot of wins because they are a very veteran team. They've got three senior starters, uh, and Crisp, Nobel, or Crisp, um, Thibel, and Dickerson. Uh, and then they have two sophomores, uh, Jalen Noel and Haim Wright, who are both back and, and players from last year's team. Uh, and then they also have another senior, Dominic Green, that comes off the bench. Sam Timmons is a junior that comes off the bench as well. So this UW team is very veteran led, while most of the conference, uh, is not. And that's, I think, a big advantage to their point, which will help them in Vegas. Uh, but they also, has a they also are able to draw fouls with, three, you know, three seconds left, <laughs> 50 feet when a guy barely touches them. That really helps you win basketball. Really helps games. Uh, to wrap things up here, um, we finally have an idea of Oregon's 2019 recruiting class. We were waiting on four-star receiver Puka Nakua, which, by the way, we've been going off. Different different pronunciations. I've been saying Nakua. You were saying Nasua. I don't know. I don't know. We, 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 nobody really knows. <laughs> For once in a world, and, I'm right on a pronunciation. And here's the good thing. It won't really matter because he's not going to Oregon. <laughs> right. That's not the good thing. But here's the, here's the yes. thing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, pick, he's pick Washington. Picking the, uh, Puka Nakua picked Washington over Oregon, BYU, USC, uh, and Utah. Um I don't think it was a shock that he picked UW. It was basically, you know, from everything we've reported, 24-7 sports had reported, was this was more so a battle of UW versus Oregon than him signing with USC or BYU or Utah. Um, we now know Oregon's class. They're basically pretty much intact. We could see a, a graduate transfer or two come into the program. Oregon is pursuing a couple of receivers at the graduate level, so maybe something happens there uh, from an Oregon perspective. But overall, we kind of know where things are at now for 2019. They're still seventh best in, in the country. They're still the top best uh, best class in the Pac-12 and the greatest class in school history. None, none of that's changed. And I think we should mention that you know even without Nakua, who uh, would have been, I think you know, we should minimize. This is not going to become a we didn't want him anyway like segment at all because I think he's a, a really talented player. But the good news for Oregon is they still have a really good wide receiver group right. coming in. They've led signed by, four guys led by Micah Pittman, Josh Delgado, and Lance Wilhite are both four stars. Jared Waters is a, a three star, but somebody that was certainly. Uh, thought of highly on the West Coast, a guy that jumped up quite a bit in the last couple groups of rankings. So a talented group here. I don't know exactly how much you can take away from the last couple of years in terms of the lack of true freshman wide receiving production. But if if Pittman is as, as, as advertised, and we're talking about a, a top 100 player here, he could be a big part of this offense going forward. I still think, like we said earlier, I do think it would be worth them at least trying to add one, maybe two grad transfers at receiver because not a lot of experience and they do need someone to step up and fill into that Dylan Mitchell role. 
And again, I don't know how confident you can really feel um, relying upon true freshmen because we just saw this last year where we thought Brian Addison and Isaiah Crocker were going to be studs and that didn't really play very much. Uh, shifting gears now towards the 2020 group. And as crazy as that sounds, yes, um, Oregon football and football recruiting in general has changed from even three years ago, four years ago, uh, to the point where recruiting never stops. And if typically at Oregon, it was always, hey, signing day's here. We're gonna, we're gonna talk about the signing day class on Wednesday of signing day. Thursday, we'll break everything down. People are all still high on it and discussing it and wanted, wanted to know more information. Friday rolls around. We start seeing a few people tail off. Interest still is pretty high. Uh, into Saturday, interest is pretty high. And then around Sunday, uh, it takes a big nosedive. And on Monday, everyone's kind of, I'm done with recruiting for the next four or five months. Tell me what's going on in August. Tell me what's going on in September. And that idea, that mindset, um, from a from a coaching staff taking you know a couple months off of vacation time that's certainly warranted and deserved uh, and not really focusing on football recruiting and picking things back up again and, and maybe for about a two week stretch in, in spring football and then taking another you know couple months off of you know low key downtime and really ramping back up again in, in August that's gone you you if if you operate in that kind of mentality. You will not sign a, a elite recruiting class. And you know, I, I wrote something on the site how there's already coming up huge dates for Oregon football's 2020 recruiting class. March 2nd is the first junior day that we know of. March 7th, Oregon starts spring football, which means that's when a lot of guys in the Pacific Northwest, and this is a year where there's multiple four-star guys within driving distance, multiple five-star guys within a day's drive of, of Oregon. Uh, they can start coming to watch and practice. April 15th starts a 46-day period where Oregon coaches will be able to go out on the road and make evaluations, make contact with recruits. April 20th, Oregon spring game, two months away, basically. Uh, and we're expecting multiple five-stars. We're expecting over 20 official – 20 Unofficial visitors from the 2020 class. April 21st begins a 40-day stretch where Oregon doesn't have a, a, anything to work on outside of recruiting and going out and seeing guys and evaluating. May 31st is that final day. And then in June, Oregon has their football camps here, which a lot of guys will come in across the country to, to attend. And then Oregon's coaches go out across the country. And they do football camps in Florida, in Texas, in California, everywhere that, that all the, the big-time recruits are. Hawaii, Oregon's coaches are going to be out there making evaluations. And the next thing you know is July. We've got the opening in the early July, and then we've got Saturday Night Live. So I mean, just right there, I just kind of mapped it out. Recruiting truly does not stop. You just made it sound like our jobs are going to continue to be busy, Matt. <laughs> yes, Eric. Uh, those plans that you had for the next four months? Those, those four-month vacation, <laughs> I guess I'll have to pull back on that. I guess, guess what, Europe will have to wait. <laughs> yeah, your sabbatical is uh, uh, denied. Well, and, but, I mean, and, and you're right. And, and this is what makes it really fun is because, you know, in the past you'd kind of learn about a recruit when he committed or, or maybe you wouldn't even learn about him until he signed and got on campus. But now you're going to get an opportunity here where there's so much more attention p- placed on these kids where you're going to learn backstories. You're going to know a lot more about these guys through the process, and you're going to probably know a little earlier on who their priority guys are because, as we saw last year, I think you have the number that the, um, the, like a big portion of this class, maybe half the class, yeah. 
had already visited for by spring the, game. By, by the spring game. Um, the guys that signed with Oregon. So, you know, you're going to have a pretty decent idea of who Oregon's top targets are. I think if you've been following closely, you have an idea of some of the, you know, premier targets, yeah. like the five-star and four-star guys. Um, but you're going to have a pretty good idea before we even get close to signing day of who Oregon is going to really put the full-court press on. And that's kind of a fun thing, I think, from a fan perspective of, cool, let me read up on this kid. Let me see what – let me watch his huddle tape some more. Let me go – Learn a little bit about more. Who are some players on his high school team that maybe Oregon go up for, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much more opportunities to educate yourself as a fan now on who kind of the premier targets are. And like you said, you can do it from a lot earlier on because in the past, you would maybe learn maybe a couple weeks before signing day you'd be looking at it. Maybe you'd be looking at it when Oregon had a big recruiting weekend, et cetera, et cetera. But now it is all the time, full time, and it is our job to try to get you guys the best information so that you are as educated as possible. And just if you're curious about um, the West Coast in, in terms of the talent that's out here and kind of where, you know the, the possibilities Oregon has uh, in terms of 2020 recruiting, there's like I want to say five five-star recruits on the West Coast uh, this season, and all five of them are high on Oregon. Yeah. And um, there's a couple guys on defense. There's a couple guys on on offense. Uh, we're expecting some of those guys to be on campus in a month, two months, depending on who you pick. Um, top 50 recruits. I think there's upwards of over 10 to, to 15 guys on the West Coast that are in the top 15, uh, top 50, excuse me, um, uh, of, of players that are on the West Coast, top 50. I mean, that's, those are guys that step in right away and are, are either starting as true freshmen or in the two deep because they're that good. There's a, there is a strong possibility uh, that Oregon, with the way that they recruit, the excitement that they have right now with this coaching staff, the season that they could have on the field in 2019, they could beat the 2019 recruiting class. And they are going to be one of the schools, in my opinion, that will be in the discussion for play, for team of the year and have the winning, uh, the top ranking for, for team recruiting. Yeah, and I think you can look at it as, a, could this 2019 class could be a jumping off point. Then you get really excited when you think about some of the players you could pair with, some of yeah. the talent we saw in this class, because this is an extremely talented class. Could be looking down here for a really, really fun run in terms of just the talent Oregon has in Eugene. Um, that's going to do it for Eric and myself, Matt. Thanks for listening to the Duck Territory Podcast. Find us on iTunes. Give us a review. More importantly, go to DuckTerritory.com. And also, if you so oblige, please give us a subscription. Try us out. We've got a seven-day free trial. Uh, I, I think you will be very pleased with the product that we put out on DuckTerritory.com. So for Eric and myself, Matt, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Adios.